Good afternoon, Nateel. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday. It's actually a really nice day out there today. I mean, all things considered, I like it when it's below 80. It's also officially summer. Finally. I know. Well, I mean, not quite. The solstice isn't until like 11 tonight, if you're going to be technical. Yeah, all right. <laughs> you're feisty today. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. We got a uh, good show coming up. You know, you remember last year, Nateel, I think we were talking about um, an issue with the Fourth Amendment and North Dakota's uh, DUI laws, drunk driving laws, uh, went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was an issue regarding blood tests, and what oh, happened that's is right. during the yeah during the 2013 legislative session, and it wasn't just North Dakota. Minnesota was a part of this as well, and maybe one other state. I'm not remembering. I know North Dakota, and Minnesota were anyway. Uh, what happened is in 2013, the legislature passed a law. And that law made it illegal to refuse a sobriety test. Now, a lot of people may be thinking to themselves, oh, well, it was, it's been illegal for a long time. And it actually wasn't. What it was is there was a, there was a civil action taken against you, right? When, if, you get, if you get a DUI, there are essentially two actions that are commenced against you immediately. One is a criminal case for having uh, broken the law against driving under the influence. The other is a civil proceeding against your your driving privileges. Those are really you know two distinct actions against you. One is criminal. One is essentially civil, I guess. Um, and so what what before this law passed, what happened is, is if you refused the sobriety test, your driving privileges were revoked. Um, what they did is the legislature did is is they literally put in the statute that the crime for refusing the test was equivalent to whatever the driving under the influence charge was so essentially they want to do a search right because that's what that's what this test is if they want to take your blood or whatever that is a search and so they don't have a warrant for it so they're going to ask you can we draw your blood you say no you know and, and, and by the way can we draw your blood so we can prove whether or not you've committed this crime we suspect you of of committing uh, you say no, in which case they then say, okay, well, now you're guilty of this crime that is equivalent. And so if you think that the Fourth Amendment essentially says you have a right to be secure in your perfect, your person and, and, and effects and, and your home of unwarranted search and seizure, unreasonable search and seizure, which, which essentially means search and seizure without a warrant, um, how do you have that right if it's illegal basically to say no? So that was the issue that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court came back and said that while it was fine to make it illegal to refuse a breath test, you uh, a blood test is so invasive, much more invasive than a, than a breath test, that you can laws criminalizing that refusal are not constitutional. So all, everything went through that. Last year, the U.S. Supreme Court handed that down, struck down that part. Well, that issue is back in the courts again. And what's going on is this time it's not blood tests, it's urine tests, right, for, you know, you know, to see if you're inebriated in some way to be driving. So we're actually going to be speaking with Mark Fries from the Vogel Law Firm. He's going to be on the program a little bit later in the show to, uh, to talk about that. But it's before the North Dakota Supreme Court now, 
And uh, a, a district court has actually reject has actually dismissed the charge. They actually came back and said, no, it's it's not illegal to uh, dis- to uh, refuse a urine test because that is a search. Uh, and a urine search, uh, the the district court judge essentially arguing that a urine search uh, is, you know, about as invasive as a blood search, which I, I would tend to agree with, right? I mean, if you think about the conditions under which you would have to give urine, I mean, obviously they got to, like, monitor you and make sure that you're not um, cheating in some way, and then also that your urine contains a lot of information about you that could be, you know, kept on, on record and stored by the government, and... It's, you know, there, there are privacy considerations there in the court saying. So anyway, it's very interesting. And I, I think also indicative of the, the way in which criminal defense attorneys are sort of on, on the front line of the issue of, over constitutional rights, right? I mean, we, we constantly have this debate in America about where our rights are, right? Because technology changes, attitudes change. You know, the government, frankly, is always pushing back. They're always looking for, you know, shortcuts or bypasses or whatever to get around some of those protections. Uh, and, they, and they would argue, you know, whether it's law enforcement or whoever, they would argue that they're doing so for a good cause, right, for the sake of public safety or whatever. But they're constantly pushing that. And, and the people who are a lot of times on the front line who are in the trenches on that sort of thing are the defense lawyers. So anyway, we're going to talk with a defense lawyer later on the program about that. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Uh, over in Bismarck, there is a progressive advocacy group that is running. Uh, they've placed a billboard urging Senator Heidi Heitkamp to avoid working with Republicans on major health care legislation. Uh, Credo Action, C-R-E-D-O Action. Um, They've, they've, they've put a, they put in place a digital billboard that asks Heitkamp to resist Trump care, a Twitter hashtag. Uh, it's, uh, by, it's between the Bismarck Airport and Heidi Heitkamp's home. Uh, they're targeting Democrats and other places. You know what's interesting about this, Natil, is every time the, the left wing of the party of, of the, or the, the progressive movement or the, the left wing of, of Democrats or whatever goes after Heidi Heitkamp, they make it more likely that she's going to get reelected. It doesn't make any sense to me why they go after her. She's a very successful Democrat in a very Republican state and a very Republican. I mean, even, you know, just in the, a lot of other states, she's a Republican. Yeah. Well, in a lot of other states, she is a Republican. But the fact of the matter is that she is a Democrat. She has Democratic views. She upholds Democratic policy. But what she's doing is literally her job. She is rep- representing the constituents that elected her. The party didn't elect her. Her constituents did. The problem is, is the Democratic Party doesn't prioritize a lot of those sort of traditional uh, Democratic Party positions, right? I mean, anymore, it's everything. It, it just seems it's all identity politics and and sort of a very extremist view on on environmentalism, and you know, a, a, a very a very left wing view like like universal health care, right? And it's just. Democrats in North Dakota can't embrace those things and get elected. Heidi Heitkamp can't embrace those things and get elected. And and to the degree that the left attacks her over those things, it just illustrates for North Dakota voters that she's not embracing those issues, and it makes it more likely that she's going to get elected. Uh, Donald Trump is is more of a friend to Heidi Heitkamp than the left wing of the Democratic Party in North Dakota. Which is kind of sad and also kind of scary. 
the best thing that happened to Heidi Heitkamp is Donald Trump considering her for his cabinet because that sent a signal to North Dakota voters that she's a moderate, she's a centrist, she can work with Trump, who, by the way, most North Dakotans voted for. Interesting political dynamic. We'll be back right after this. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Don't go away. Welcome back. Robert Ford here on 970 WDAY, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Natil, you remember the story out of Minot from a few weeks back about the water balloons at the end of school? I do. That was a really, I, I don't know, overreactive story? Yeah. So there was, for, for those of you who aren't uh, up to date, there were three uh, kids, two of them 17, one of them 18, uh, all all of them seniors, I believe. Anyway, they uh, last days of school, they uh, sneak some water balloons into the cafeteria uh, of Minot High School and proceed to unload on their fellow students and some staff. Uh, school administrators were not impressed. There was a school resource officer who got involved. Uh, one of the kids ended up getting arrested and charged as an adult in municipal court uh, with... Uh, what was it? I think it was disorderly conduct, maybe. I think yes, so. Disorderly. Yep, that's right. Disorderly conduct. Um, it's a misdemeanor, but, you know, it had some implications for this kid. Community not happy. Um, a lot of people very critical of the school's handling of it. Uh, not necessarily. And I was critical of the, the school's handling of it. I wasn't condoning what the kids did. I just worry about our increasing our increasing willingness to involve law enforcement in what to me seem pretty traditional school discipline matters. Anyway, the charges have been dropped. Uh, local prosecutors basically saying, uh, you know, they, they cited uh, the costs of prosecution. They cited the fact, obviously, the state of North Dakota uh, doesn't have a lot of, uh, you know, we've been cutting budgets left and right, so there's a limit on judicial resources. So the prosecutors basically I, I guess with their statement here, let me see it. This is a report from the Minot Daily News. Um, I quote, although probable cause existed for the incident involving Mr. Falcon. Now, that's the student. His name was uh, Xavier Mason Falcon. Uh, although probable cause existed for the incident involving Mr. Falcon, the city now moves to dismiss the charge, uh, wrote the prosecutor. This dismissal takes into account the allocation of prosecutorial resources, the court schedule, and the judicial economy. Uh, pursuant to the factors mentioned in the preceding sentence, the city believes that dismissal is appropriate at this time. So basically they're saying, we don't have time for this, <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's kind of what I'm taking away. Like, like it's, it's going to cost us money to do this. It's going to cost us too much time to do this, so we're just going to exercise some discretion. I mean, I, I don't doubt the disorderly conduct statute is very, very broadly written, so I don't doubt that, that they maybe could have gotten – by the way, this kid had pled not guilty – Maybe they could have gotten a prosecution, you know. I, I don't know. I the like I said, the statute is very broad. It applies to a lot of things. I suppose it would apply to this situation, but they chose to drop the charges, and I think that's a good thing. And, and further, I hope my not school officials. I hope school officials across the the region maybe use this as a teachable moment about some of the choices we're making when it comes to handling discipline in the schools. 
more and more we have law enforcement officers on hand in the schools, right? That's been a big push is to put, you know, resource officers and that in the school. And, you know, initially that was intended to be about security, right? I mean, we've we're, everybody's worried about school shootings and everything else, and rightfully so. And so having a law enforcement officer there who is obviously armed, who obviously has tools at his or her disposal uh, that school administrators simply do not, seems like a good thing. But I, I, I think it's there's been a side effect of using these school resource officers in sort of routine school discipline issues. And I'm not sure that's a good thing because a cop is a cop. Their job is to arrest people for committing crimes. Arresting people is, is one of the tools at their disposable. So so if you if you call a cop into a situation like this, yeah, probably somebody's getting arrested. Now is the right that the right outcome? I'm not so sure it always is. I understand that the tough position that that a lot of uh, school administrators find themselves in these days, where essentially, you know, we, we've gotten to a point where where parents, a lot of parents, have sort of abdicated responsibility for disciplining their kids to the schools, and so now school administrators are being asked to do more in that regard under greater scrutiny, thanks to things like social media, than ever before. And so, for school officials, it probably looks like a nice out to bring the cops in right like it, it's 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 a safe thing to do because you call in the police you let them handle it and your hands are clean right because the cops are maybe a little bit better trained to handle some of these situations or maybe a little bit more um inured to public criticism but i don't know i mean what's the effect on the kids i mean now all of a sudden you've got a school prank that in you know in another era would be something that, you know, people, I'll, you know, boys will be boys and laugh about it a little bit and, and move on, right? I mean, give the kids detention. Make them follow the janitor around for a week after school ends and scrape gum off desks or something like that. I mean, they shouldn't get away with it. What they did was wrong. I'm just, it's not right to elevate it to a crime. And I, I, I think when you elevate it to a crime, right, when you, when you, when you exercise power, when you exercise thor- authority, that sort of wantonly you breed disrespect for it right and i I think that's the last thing we want is to make the law and to make law enforcement look absurd by asking them to enforce the law by asking them to use law enforcement authority in extremely petty ways and this was petty this was this was small these kids should have got detention by the way, the other two kids, because they were 17, uh, were, were sent essentially to the juvenile system, and that's private. So we don't really know what happened to the two younger kids. Hopefully their charges were dismissed. According to reports I've seen, uh, all the kids got to walk across the stage for graduation. So that's a good thing. Caller, Don, we got about a minute left. What's up? Well, first of all, in the old days, you'd get smacked alongside the head and told to knock it off, which... Teachers cannot do anymore. No school official can do that anymore. And second of all, you've got thousands of teachers being assaulted every year by kids in schools because they can't do anything with kids. There's a reason you got to have a law officer there because that's the way it is now. 
How, how do how do we roll it back then, Don? How how do we how do we get back? Because I'm not I'm not sure that opening the door up to kids hitting teachers or administrators hitting the students is the right solution. But how do we how do we get back to where we we're on a more reasonable footing for this stuff? Well, the uh, the courts took discipline out of parents and teachers' hands. You can't the corporal no no corporal punishment is allowable. I mean, when I was a kid, you didn't do that crap because you knew you're going to get something alongside the head. I, I, don't, I don't think it's just corporal punishment. I Thanks for the call, Don. I don't think it's just corporal punishment. I, I think it's also parents whining when their kids get in trouble, right? Because that's the other thing. If you assign these kids to go and scrape gum after school for a week when school ends, you think some parents would whine about that. And that's part of the problem, too. Anyway, we got to go. This is the Rob Report. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Porter here on 970 WDAY, 701 email talk at WDAY.com. I almost forgot the number. Shut up, Natil. No! <laughs> A report from John Hageman this morning. Uh, questions about, and, uh, excuse me, questions about privacy and public safety hovered. Over arguments at North Dakota at the North Dakota Supreme Court on Monday, June nineteenth, in a Cass County DUI case that may test a decision handed down by the nation's highest court last year. The arguments came nearly a year to the day after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of a warrantless breath test in drunk driving cases, but said the Fourth Amendment doesn't permit warrantless blood tests, a more invasive procedure. The ruling came out of three consolidated cases under the title Birchfield v. North Dakota. Uh, so. Now there's another case, and I was referring about to it earlier in the program, uh, only this time instead of blood tests, we're now talking about urine tests. Here with me is criminal defense attorney Mark Fries of the Vogel Law Firm. Mark, how's it going? I'm good, Rob. How are you? I'm well. Um, tell us about the specifics of this case. The uh, case is, is really addressing what went unanswered in the Birchfield case. Uh, the Birchfield case, the United States Supreme Court addressed whether it was lawful for North Dakota and other states to criminalize refusing a breath test or a blood test following an arrest for DUI. Left unanswered was whether it would be permissible to criminalize refusal of a urine test following an arrest for DUI. So this case is really uh, kind of going to, to set up or address the, the issue that went unanswered by the United States Supreme Court in the Birchfield case. Is it, is it I mean, did law enforcement like switch to urine tests? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with how often these different tests are used or whatever. After the blood test, after the Supreme Court handed down their, their decision on, it said blood, you know, warrantless blood tests, you can't criminalize that. Uh, you can't criminalize refusal. Did they switch to urine tests? I mean, are urine tests like more prominent now? No. Uh, the urine test typically, Rob, is used if the, the officers believe that the driver is under the influence of a controlled substance or a narcotic rather than under the influence of alcohol. Law enforcement generally does not like to do a urine test either. Uh, they're inconvenient. There's a, a period that they have to wait. They have to have a void. The subject has to void, and they have to wait a period of time before they collect the sample. It takes an enormous amount of time typically to do it. But it's the urine tests are, are routinely used in cases where the officers will suspect that the driver 
partners impaired by a controlled substance. The three permissible tests under North Dakota law, blood test, breath test, and urine test. So essentially what we have now is, is a case, and, and the, the, the federal, the, the, excuse me, the district court uh, judge at this point has said that, you know, a, a urine test is invasive enough that you can't criminalize refusal, right? Uh, you know, at, at this point you can't, you know, he, he's saying it's, it's not all that different from a blood test in terms of invasiveness. And so that's his argument. So, so we could be at a point if, if there's three, if there's three tests, we already have the U.S. Supreme Court's opinion on breath and blood. If, depending on how this comes out, two of the three permissible tests for sobriety in the state of North Dakota would need to be conducted by by warrant or else you have a right to refuse. Is that, I mean, is that accurate? That's accurate. You've got it uh, summarized well. And, I, uh, you know, I would just point out to your listeners, uh, Rob, this notion that obtaining a warrant is a huge impediment is really misplaced. Um, all of this really goes back to a case in 1966 called Schmerber versus California, where the United States Supreme Court said that the government and states have an important uh, obligation to protect the traveling public from drinking drivers. So as a result of that, they developed an exception to the warrant requirement in cases where the police had to get a blood drop. So uh, Mr. Schmerber had been involved in a car accident. The blood would or the alcohol would rather dissipate, dissipate from the blood rather quickly. So based on the exigent circumstances, the United States Supreme Court said, you can get a blood draw without having to get a warrant as long as there are exigent circumstances. Then in 2013, a case called Missouri versus McNeely, the court clarified that every routine drunk driving case is not exigent circumstances, and police have to get a warrant unless there are clearly exigent circumstances. At about that same time in 2013, North Dakota had joined about a dozen states that had criminalized refusing tests, meaning that the person could say, I won't take the test unless the police go out and get a warrant. Then comes along Birchfield, which was actually the challenge that was raised in 2016. But the, the, the point is this. The law has changed dramatically since 1966. Police can get a warrant by telephone. They can get a warrant by electronic means, meaning an email message. They can draft an affidavit. They're pretty routine and they're pretty standard. So this notion of getting a warrant, creating an impediment, really is no longer the impediment it used to be. But isn't that another – and by the way, if you want to join in, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY if you got any comments or questions. Isn't there an additional concern, though? I mean, because that was definitely a part – I remember reading the U.S. Supreme Court opinion uh, in Birchfield, and that was something that came up was how easy it was to get warrants. But isn't that concerning in and of itself if, if getting a warrant becomes such a routine matter? Does it start to feel like we're just sort of rubber stamping these things? I mean, what's, what's, what's the protection of a warrant if it's just sort of an insta warrant where a cop emails in an affidavit and a judge rubber stamps it? What protection is that? Well, it's, uh, it wouldn't be rubber stamped. The judge, the, uh, the judge has taken an oath to independently evaluate the affidavit of probable cause. In the case that you're referring to that was argued earlier this week before the North Dakota Supreme Court, I actually listened to the argument uh, online. There was a question whether a judge would, in fact, conclude that there was probable cause under the circumstances. But the, the, the whole point of the Fourth Amendment is to have somebody neutral and detached, somebody who's not engaged in the enterprise of ferreting out crime, to evaluate the circumstances independently and 
and conclude whether probable cause, which is a low burden of proof, conclude that probable cause exists to allow the government to make a search. I don't believe that judges will just routinely rubber stamp it. They will evaluate the affidavits. They'll weigh the evidence. And it's a low burden. I agree that the vast majority will be approved. But daily, routinely, uh, judges are denying arrest warrants and search warrants based on affidavits that don't establish what's necessary to get the warrant. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I don't have any question that a judge is is going to, you know, if, if we're going to search somebody's house or something, right, I'm, I'm certain that a judge is going to provide a, a great deal of scrutiny on that. But I, I, I guess what I'm worried is that if we're talking about, like, like traffic, like I'm thinking about someplace like Los Angeles, right? I mean, there's got to be a lot of DUI stops on an average weekend night in Los Angeles. I mean, they just have people sitting there all night requesting reviews for, for you know reviewing search requests all day i mean and i'm i'm wondering how how you how we could say that they're applying you know a, a standard to that if if it's so routine and, and so voluminous in, in in terms of the requests i think the the routine cases where the person the police officer has reason to believe that the driver is impaired by alcohol the routine case is going to be processed the way cases are currently being processed they're going to be requested to take uh, a blood or a breath test, excuse me. Um, the requirement of obtaining a search warrant is not necessary for a breath test. That was the essential holding of Birchfield. The United States Supreme Court said we need to weigh out the, the degree of intrusion with the governmental interests that we seek to protect. And it's, everyone agrees it's important that the government protect us from impaired drivers. And a breath test where there's no sample that's retained, there's no piercing below the skin, there's no voiding uh, uh, in, in the presence of another person. Person. Uh, DNA evidence cannot be gathered. Uh, blood tests and urine tests can reveal all sorts of information about us. Our D- DNA history, the presence of diseases, the presence of ailments, the use of controlled substances, a variety of things that we don't want to have disclosed. So in weighing out the invasiveness of the search with the, the governmental interests, the U.S. Supreme Court said that breath tests are permissible without a warrant. So I think routine cases are going to be continued to be processed along those lines. In the unusual cases where the police have reason to believe the person is under the influence of a, a, a narcotic or some other type of controlled substance, uh, they should have to, as the Fourth Amendment has always required, go that extra step and have a judge make an independent determination. Now, of course, a person can routinely and regularly does waive a right to get a search warrant by voluntarily consenting to the test, because in addition to the criminal consequences, North Dakota has a very uh, a very rigid set of implied consent laws that create all sorts of license implications for people who refuse to provide a sample when requested to do so by police. And that's, but that's the, I mean, the, the big change, though, was criminalizing this, right? I mean, because acting against your driving privileges is sort of an administrative action that's not necessarily criminal. Where they cross the threshold here is where, and I, I think the North Dakota statute actually in one place literally says refusing the test is a crime equivalent to the original crime, which, you know, makes me think, like, like if you think I stole a stereo and you want to search my house for it and I say, no, not without a warrant, and you say, okay, well, we're just going to charge you for stealing that stereo, uh, even though because you declined the search, well, then where's my Fourth Amendment rights in that, right? So, that, so the that, big... Yeah, the big, that's exactly the point, yeah. Rob, is the criminalizing... Uh, uh, criminalizing the, 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 the declination of uh, a person's declination to submit to a warrantless search is the problematic portion of this. The, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court and the North Dakota Supreme Court has long held that states are free to impose very harsh driver's license consequences for people who are suspected of impaired driving but don't consent to testing. 
So where are we at in this case in North Dakota? I mean, uh, this is this is gone. It's before the state Supreme Court now. How long does that process take, and how likely is this to end up before the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, this issue will ultimately make it to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's unlikely that it will happen quickly, though, because what happens uh, in in cases where where there's a, an issue uh, like this, the the U.S. Supreme Court oftentimes waits until a number of states and lower courts have weighed in, and they have a kind of a split among the lower courts as to how it's being resolved, and then they address it. So they kind of wait for it to percolate through the system. I personally think that the district court judge has this right. I think submitting to a urine test is much more like submitting to a blood test than it is to a breath test. The process is much, uh, you know, much more invasive. Somebody being watched by a police officer while they're voiding into a cup and retaining a sample that, dis- you know, that reveals all sorts of intimate details about us just to me seems to be much more like uh, drawing a blood specimen than it does blowing into a breath testing device. The North Dakota Supreme Court will issue a written decision. They typically do so within a matter of a few months. Sometimes it takes longer, um, depending on how the justices align in in reviewing it. But I would guess that somewhere between 8 and 15 weeks, we can expect a decision from the North Dakota Supreme Court. And then uh, either side would have the opportunity to appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court from there. Well, certainly interesting. We'll be paying attention. Mark, thanks for your time. Anytime, Rob. That's Mark Fries from the Vogel Law Firm. I'm Rob Port. This is 970 WDAY. 701-293-9000. 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll wrap up the show right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. You know, yesterday, Natil, the, uh, speaking about the U.S. Supreme Court, as we were in the last segment, uh, the Supreme Court handed down a decision on trademarks. Uh, it, was, it was sort of an interesting case. It was a, it's, it's a band called The Slants. Uh, they're actually, it's, it's an Asian-American band. Mm-hmm. Uh, slant is a racial pejorative for someone of of the Asian persuasion, I guess, um, and and so they. I, but they're using the the word they they named their band after it. They wanted to trademark their band's name. The federal government refused, saying that the term is a is a racial pejorative and they weren't going to trademark that. Uh, so the band fought it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and they won. And the interesting thing here locally is that a lot of people are getting excited, thinking that it might have it might be something to bring back the Fighting Sioux nickname at the University of North Dakota. And I'm here to tell you that the two things are not related. Um, the issue with the issue with the trademarks, and and it, it does have implications for the sports world. The Washington Redskins could benefit from this under the Obama administration. I think um, the Obama administration. I'm forgetting whether maybe they did it through like the FTC. I, I'm I'm forgetting how exactly they went about doing this. But the Obama administration was sort of making a similar argument about you know pulling the trademark for the Washington Redskins name on on the idea that Redskins is is racially insensitive and so can't be trademarked. Uh, but the Supreme Court essentially saying no. You know the federal government has to trademark these things. It's a violation of free speech for them not to. And I agree. 
you know, the band should be able to do that. The Washington Redskins should be able to do that. Whether or not you or I think it's offensive or not, that's a subjective thing. That's up to us. So we have other avenues by which to make our feelings known about that. But if people out there who support the Finding Sue nickname think this is going to bring everything back, I got to remind you that the issue with the Finding Sue nickname was not the trademark. The issue was the NCAA, ostensibly a private organization, essentially saying that UND can't participate in their tournaments that UND would face sanctions while playing, uh, you know, in, in NCAA sanctioned games while having that logo slash nickname. Uh, it was basically the NCAA as a private organization deciding that the University of North Dakota should no longer have that nickname. UND to this day owns the trademark to the Fighting Sioux logo and nickname. As a matter of fact, I believe their settlement with the NCAA requires them to maintain that. As a matter of fact, in order to maintain that trademark and stay in accordance with the NCAA's, their agreement with the NCAA, from time to time, the University of North Dakota has to actually use the logo and nickname because you're not allowed to trademark something you don't actually use. Otherwise, people would go out and just trademark everything and wait around for other people to want to use it and then try to profit from it. You actually have to be an active use of the thing. So every once in a while, UND is going to have to sell some throwback jerseys or something in order to maintain their rights to that logo nickname. But the trademark rights were never in question. Nobody was trying to remove the trademark rights from the University of North Dakota. Their whole problem was the NCAA. So the logo's not coming back. The nickname's not coming back. I, I know people are still passionate about it. You go up there, the logo nickname's everywhere. Everyone's wearing the jerseys. Everyone's wearing the shirts. They're still shouting it in the crowd. But it ain't coming back. It's just not. I think it's time for those folks to hang it up. As, as sad as I am that it went away. Because, again, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me with something like that. It's such a, it's such a subjective thing. I mean, there was a there's a Sioux tribe here in North Dakota that vi- that voted overwhelmingly to keep the nickname. That same Sioux tribe, the Spirit Lake Sioux, sued the NCAA to keep the logo nickname. I I, I think the problem when it gets to a First Amendment issue, where the Supreme Court's deciding, is it's it's essentially it's not up to the government to dissent to tell us what is and is not offensive, right? So it's not up to the it's not up to the government to tell us that some name or logo or whatever is too too offensive too offensive to 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 trademark too offensive to use that's not up to the government if we're going to have the first amendment then that's what it has to mean as i like to say very often about the first amendment it, we don't need it if the only thing we're ever going to talk about are things that aren't controversial if the only art we're going to produce are things that doesn't make anybody mad Right, If the sort of movies we're going to make are the sort that aren't going to offend anybody, then we don't need the First Amendment. People are always trying to, to, to find loopholes in the First Amendment, to say that something is too provocative, it goes too far for the First Amendment protect, pr- protections. And I would argue that the opposite is true. That's exactly what the First Amendment was supposed to protect, is that point of view, that message, that art, that song, that movie, that band name that everybody considers offensive that's when the first amendment becomes important that's it for me today you can always catch me here 1 to 2 p.m monday through friday on 970 wday or 24 hours a day seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com thanks for listening